Welcome to our social landscape of J.R. Woodward. Catherine Bond Stockton is Distinguished Professor of English, former Associate Vice President for Equity and Diversity, and Inaugural Dean of the School for Cultural and Social Transformation at the University of Utah, which if she was a professor and dean of such here in Florida, might have a word about her job. What with all the antagonism our governor, Ron DeSantis, has shown towards diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's a renowned writer on issues related to sex, gender, and sexuality. Her books, including Beautiful Bottom, Beautiful Shame, Where Black Meets Queer, The Queer Child, Making Out, God Between Their Lips, and Genders, her most recent book, published in 2021 as part of the MIT Essential Knowledge series. I first came across her book, Queer Child, as I was preparing for my interview with Travers about transgender issues in sport. More recently, I read the transcript of her interview with Ezra Klein at the New York Times about her genders book and reached out to her in the hope that we could discuss that book, but also the larger context in which gender and sexuality are evolving so quickly right in front of our eyes. Conversation did not disappoint as she is a wizard with words. In addition to having her PhD from Brown and English, she has a Master's in Divinity from Yale, and you know how those ministers are, silver tongue for sure. We talk about her notion that gender is queer for all of us, the idea being that we're all trying to work out what it means to live our sex and gender in the context of our race and social class, particularly since the terms are not objectively concrete. We also discuss how sex, not just gender, is a navigated space, contrary to what many of us have heard over time. Sports, transgender issues, race, and her vision for a more inclusive future finish up our conversation. So, uh, Catherine Von Stockton, thank you very much for joining me on our social landscape. It's nice to meet you. It's a deep pleasure to be here, Jr. Regarding your bio, you have you have lived what you have studied, you know, as you've written about uh, since you were since you can remember, since you have memories. Um, yes. Did that? What made you decide to um, pursue this like professionally and mm. and through English as opposed to some other way? Well, it was actually a, an exclusionary force in my own life that led to my being an English professor. So in, in two respects, uh, I grew up thinking, and this was a very gendered supposition, that if you're really going to be an intellectual, you do math and science. So I was a math science head all through high school, um, was highly achieving in those areas. If there's something such as a natural aptitude, you know, it seemed like uh, numbers and STEM issues were my natural aptitude. But as I looked around, I was the only girl. Um, I think by the time I got to my engineering physics class, I think at that point I was the only girl. Uh, in my AP engineering physics class in high school, there might have been one other. In calculus, there were a few more girls. Mm -hmm. um, in biology, even more. But um, so I began to feel like I had several strikes against me. If I was going to continue to have to be a woman, and I didn't see any way out of being a woman since nobody's listening to me. And at that point, I mean, I knew from the time I was three, we can go back to that three and a half, that I fit this word that I heard, gay, homo, whatever. Um, I knew I was attracted to girls. I just felt like ugh, trying to be in these domains that are so male-centric, I just, I kind of give up. I just don't know where to go with that. And in college, I was still, I started as a biochem major, but then I took some psych classes and philosophy. And I was like, ooh, I kind of like this. And um, I went off to divinity school, another story there about how religion intersects with my story. Mm -hmm. uh, because as strange as this may sound, I found that becoming an evangelical at age 13 enabled my queerness. That's wow. a whole story okay. unto itself. We can come mm -hmm. back to it. Mm -hmm. So I went to Div School to buy some time. And in Div School, though I did not go to Divinity School to be a minister, I decided that I actually wanted to be an Episcopal priest, that that made sense to me. Okay. And they had just begun ordaining women, but they were only ordaining gay people in New York City. It was the only place in the country mm -hmm. 
where the Episcopal Church was ordaining gay people. And so, and I was in Connecticut in the Connecticut diocese. So I began to see the writing on the wall that I'm not going to be able to get ordained, you know, as a gay woman. Mm -hmm. So I went off to graduate school at Brown to do an MA and a PhD just to buy some time to allow the Episcopal Church to come to its senses. (laughs) (laughs) It it did not come to its senses (laughs) within those five years. And so I thought, well, I've trained, you know, in the field Mm -hmm. of literature. I might as well go off and do it. Mm -hmm. And by that point, I thought literature was really cool. And Mm -hmm. fact, everything that I think about today, critically, and in these sort of more complicated ways, came in the scene of English literature, because postmodern theory, deconstruction, semiotics, again, Mm -hmm. those may be terms that listeners don't know. But all of those things that really began critically looking at the binaries associated with race and Mm -hmm. gender and class were coming to the fore. And uh, I just thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go off and do this. Yeah. And then teaching turned out to be such a noble art. It's a yeah. it's a ministry very much mm-hmm. at the heart yeah. of it. So you got to the you got to the ministry. I did. Just a I did. circuitous route there, but you yes. got there. Yeah, quite serpentine. <laughs> yeah. I ended up I was a pre veterinary major uh at Florida State and mm-hmm. then um took organic chemistry and then psychology started looking good. Because <laughs> uh-huh. I was I was taking chemistry without your uh math science acumen. So <laughs> So in a standard introductory sociology class, typically when we get to the gender section, um, sex and gender section, it's usually historically been sex is biology, the hardware, the anatomy, the parts, gender is the social expectations that go along with those parts. And I'm not uh, I'm not sure either of those are sufficient and they may be of disputed accuracy. So I would like to talk about that relationship between sex and gender in a minute, but I'd maybe start with gender. And in your most recent book titled Genders... 2021, I believe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you present a theme that, quote, gender is queer for everyone. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, pleased to do that. So here one has to think of queer in that expansive sense of the definition. And being an English professor, you will see this will not be the last time that I take us to the dictionary. <laughs> so when you look up the word queer in the dictionary, my dictionary is a little old school. It says something like, derisive word for homosexual. So that's the first definition which all of us could get to. Though happily, right, derision has fallen off of that because Mm -hmm. queer is a word that queer people now embrace for themselves. So we think of that as sort of LGBTQ stuff. But the second definition is the one that's really most powerful for my book, and that is simply strange. And probably everybody's encountered that word queer, particularly if you're reading something from the late 19th century, you know, like, what a queer idea. (laughs) So it's it's that idea of strange that I want to pick up on in this book and show that, first of all, gender is a matter for each and every one of us, because almost every one of us, unless we had gender creative parents, most of us did not, got, got sexed at birth, you know, against our will, not consenting to that kind of word cone that was put on us. And then from there had to kind of, you know, decide how to live inside this sort of suit that we're zipped into. Mm. And what I want my book to get at is what a strange prospect that is for each and every one of us, especially since, again, so many of us have grown up and still could in a time of thinking that men and women are opposites of each other, right? That phrase opposite sex is still in circulation. So if men and women have to be opposites of each other, It literally means it's sort of like somebody took a sword and cut us in half at birth, right? You can only be this particular half of the human being with these particular traits. And of course, if they're going to be opposite sexes, those traits and definitions have to be mutually exclusive. And I think trying to live that way as a person while noting at this point in time that there's so many things that men and women have in common, Mm -hmm. that how does that notion even make sense? And yet I think all of us would submit it has been a highly shaping force. For some of us, the deepest force we know, we're not thinking about racialization, Mm -hmm. class and money. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what makes gender a very strange prospect for us all. Mm -hmm. And that word cone, use the word cone as kind of Mm -hmm. like just kind of limiting 
options, basically? Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yes, limiting and totalizing, if you think about it, because that that word is lowered at birth, right? Mm-hmm. You're not even yet, you know, a, a human being in language. I, don't, right. I, I can't remember my birth. Maybe if I <laughs> right. took, you know, LSD, I could, but I haven't. <laughs> so, so that's lowered on you before you even are kind of waking up into a consciousness as a self this thing is already around you. Mm-hmm. And particularly in my time period, there was no getting that thing off of you. Sure, and sure. that's why I call it a cone. It is mm-hmm. fully and utterly surrounding of your being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it even starts to form, I would guess, before you even come home from the hospital, you know, the, yes. the, the your nursery room is already yeah. painted, painted the walls with baseball bats and mitts or flowers and butterflies, you know, and you haven't even come shooting out yes. yet. And you already, you know, you're being, you yes. the cones waiting for you, I suppose. Yes, for sure. Um, you think it's easier for people now to, to work outside of the cone or to move it a little bit, you know, um, this term gender, you know, it's going through so many changes. I, I saw that Tinder, now has a dating website has over 50 genders uh, and yes. nine, nine sexuality profiles to choose from. And back in the day, I was just two. So do you think things mm-hmm. are changing now uh, to make the cone a little less suffocating? Or And if so, what's made that happen right now or, or recently, at least in the last X years? Yes, I think undoubtedly, if we take the large view, it is definitely changing. In some respects, wildly changing. I'm seeing things that I didn't think I would see in my lifetime. Mm. You know, I used to teach that this binary was a false binary and the students would be deeply interested, but they would sort of perceive it almost like science fiction, like this world that I was describing that we might come to a time where we don't sort people out as men and women. You know, they just thought, as I did, we will probably never see this world. And now, of course, to your very point, we are seeing this world. However, I would say it depends on who you are, where you live, where are you on this planet, where are you in these United States, what parent or parents or set of parents are raising you, what school system are you in, what state (laughs) are you a part of, right, right? may determine whether you could get gender-affirming care, Mm -hmm. whether you could get puberty blockers, whether you could make these sorts of moves, whether your parents will support you saying who you feel yourself to be. Mm-hmm. And of course, let me make a point there that that for many children, it's not going to be one thing that they are. It may be variable. It may change back and forth and to and fro. Sure. And, sure. and I see that as a wonderful thing, mm-hmm. not a thing to be feared. Mm-hmm. Do you think there was a was there a turning point in your mind when that became even a discussion? Because, uh, you know, you and I are not too far apart age wise. This never would have come up really at the le- at the level it is now. Um, when I was younger, was there mm-hmm. a, one particular thing or has it just been a, a confluence of events? Yeah, I think it's a set of things. And when I try to figure out, and of course, it's all deeply speculative, like, right, sure, why sure. did it change? Why did it break open? Sure. A couple of things that I would mention that that we can talk about and see if you agree. I think one of them is undoubtedly people coming out very bravely coming out mm-hmm. as something that they were not said to be. Mm-hmm. And and when I say that, I always give a little caveat because I think, you know, in, in gay communities and in trans communities, there's probably a tendency for us to feel like when we say who we are, we're liberating ourselves. But, you know, somebody like Judith Butler, the yes. great, you know, philosopher of gender, yep. warns us that, you know, coming out and for the longest time, especially when you and I were growing up, you're coming out into the arms of the law. Mm-hmm. You are coming mm-hmm. out into the definitions that the general public sets for that particular thing. Right. You know, whether it's homosexual, whether it's gay, whether it's man or woman. Mm-hmm. However, I do think coming out can be a very profound thing because in some ways you are challenging people to think new thoughts. And for me, when I was coming out as gay, I didn't feel I was liberating myself, but I felt that I was saying, I want you to see who you won't protect. That here I was in Utah, sodomite by state law in 1987 when I started my job, but employed by the state of Utah. So that's interesting. So I'd say factor one is brave people, you know, daring to say who they might feel themselves to be. Second one, of course, is just more ideas in circulation. Here you and I are having a great podcast about it, right? Mm -hmm. People are reading things. People are talking to each other. That changes things. People coming out in families is one of the most powerful things of all, because now yesterday I loved my child before I knew they were gay or knew they were trans. So now today when I've learned something new about them, do I stop loving them? Mm 
Mm-hmm. Hopefully not. Right. And probably not, though, mm-hmm. not always. Mm-hmm. And last thing I'll say, um, and this is the one that's been so interesting. I've had so many parents come to me who say, have a trans child or a non-binary child. And and sometimes these parents are very progressive, but they're they're mourning. They're stressing out. They don't know what to do. And they come to me to grieve, which is always mm-hmm. like, go to somebody else. Yes, do not <laughs> do that with your child. Right. Do, that, uh, do that with me or anybody mm-hmm. that you need to. But the thing that I try to say to parents is, you know, give yourself a little bit of a break because you have been so attached to the surface of this child that you have seen and loved. And the extent to which you are attached to that surface should be a deep-seated clue of the extent to which your own child is attached to their own surface. Mm-hmm. So let your grief and let your mourning be the clue to compassion and acceptance and celebration of this new surface that right. you may get to encounter you know, through your child. And I guess I'll throw one last one in too. Yeah, I think, you know... In the period post-George Floyd, when we have been either having or pretending to have a national reckoning with race, right? Mm -hmm. I think one major thing that that reckoning has done is to get us thinking about the privilege of surface, right? Mm -hmm. That there are undoubtedly certain privileges that attach to certain surface forms. So I think more attention to racialization has also called more attention to surface, and gender lives in all kinds of places, but it undoubtedly also lives at the surface, and surface is deep. Right. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think of the Washington football team changing their name um, from the Redskins to the whatever, and I, that probably wouldn't mm-hmm. have happened without George Floyd, uh, all of the sponsorship. They were going to lose sponsorship and all, and that's yeah. not – it's not Black Lives Matter. It's a different color right. matters, but it might not have that's right. happened without, without that. Yeah, um, yep. That cone, you know, that – this is just an aside kind of, but that you saying that they have to, you know, they're kind of in shock. Like this is their child is not what they thought yesterday, but it's, it's not like their child just changed their favorite color, but it could be that if we didn't have such a strong cone to begin with, you know, like if, if they weren't already putting so much worth and value into that one particular Mm -hmm. aspect Mm -hmm. of their their life, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it wouldn't be Mm -hmm. such a jolt, you know, but Mm -hmm. I, I really loved your book too. I, I have to tell you, I've loved, uh, your writing for whatever it is. It's just kind of like, it just, I like to read the way, uh, that you write it, you know, I just oh, really, I just, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it kind of reminds me, because just a couple blog posts ago, I wrote about him, but uh, it was kind of James Baldwin-ish for me in a way because mm, of the, the cool. conversation, <laughs> the conversationality of it. It was just like you were sitting across from me, um, but then it had a lot of Irving Goffman in it. And you know, Goffman, if you mm-hmm. remember, okay. And you know, one of my favorite sociologists, mm-hmm. because it also had a lot of spots in there. Where I'm like, no, what is that? What is that? What is she saying again? <laughs> so, you know, Goffman, Goffman's like making up his own words, you know, and, and yes. you're talking about gestures as prosthetics. And I'm like, wait a minute now. So it had a lot of like golf <laughs> in it, but it also just kind of read so easily and flowy. Like it was mm-hmm. kind of like reading, reading some James Baldwin at least. Yeah. All right. Anyways, I, I did enjoy it. Um, so going back to the, that traditional, potentially problematic way that sociology is historically defined sex gender, I was just trying to tell you, um, I'm yeah. trying to balance if I need to even um, completely rejecting that binary essentialism with mm-hmm. throwing the baby out of the bathwater, a baby out yeah. with the bathwater, you know, yes, kind of, yes. kind of tumbling into postmodern deconstructionism, you know? Right. So yes. I, I ask a survey question to my students. Um, if I think it's from the NORC, the National Opinion Research Center, and it, mm-hmm. it, it goes as follows. For getting ahead in life, how important is being born a man or a woman? For getting ahead in life, how important is being born a man or a woman? And it's a five-point Likert scale. Mm-hmm. essential, very important, fairly important, not very important, not important at all. And not many of my students put essential. Uh, most of them go kind of the wimpy route that everybody else in America goes and it's fairly important, just kind of goes right in the middle. <laughs> but, but, you know, not very many. Some people will say it's not important at all, you know. Um, yes, yeah. So my first question was going to be to ask you, you know, how you would respond to that survey question. But then the second one kind of ties in is what does it even mean to be born a man or a woman? What mm-hmm. do you think the question is actually, is it, mm-hmm. you didn't write that survey question, I know, but mm-hmm. the way that you would interpret it, um, I guess people walking on the street, but what does it really mean to say someone's born or a man or a woman? They're not the only two categories, right? Um, mm-hmm. Although many people walking down the street, I'm sure mm-hmm. think they are. So it mm-hmm. does kind of remind me of race in a little bit with that social construction, skin color yeah. doesn't make race, but a penis apparently does make sex, you know, like these kind of notions. 
I like uh, Katrina Carcasis says that defining sex has always required negotiation. Yes. And then one more from Adam Love, the anatomical, chromosomal, and hormonal complexities involved in differentiating men from women make sex, like gender, a socially and historically constructed concept. So what is a meaningful way, do you think, to com- to conceptualize sex in relation to gender or at the uh, at the other outside of your conceptualization of gender? Mm-hmm. Such such an important question. And I guess it's hard for me, particularly given my history, to imagine that being sex and gendered <laughs> isn't massive, you know, in sure. our lives. Because mm-hmm. again, it'd be like saying racialization isn't. And um, I certainly hope we wouldn't imagine that could be true uh, in these United States or, or on this planet. So I guess one way to begin, and maybe this will get to the way in which, right, what we're not saying is, is that people aren't born some way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it says, people imagining that they're born exactly as a man or a woman, we are born with certain bodily characteristics, genetic material, right? And those those things are going to be very important in our lives. We're born with a propensity for a certain height and maybe even a propensity for a certain weight. We're sure. born with, you know, particular skin tone. So these are all aspects of our bodily being that are incredibly important. Really, the question just comes whether the sorting that we have historically done, man, woman, and then think of all the sorting that we've done according to race, mm-hmm. whether that really is biological at its core. Now, most scientists that I know, most scholars that I know will say that race is not biological. Sure. That is a, that's been a set of categories we put onto people because they swap genes with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. I think there's a stronger belief that there really is something biologically core and essential to the body of a man or the body of a woman. But this is where I think it does get complicated. So again, English professor, go to the dictionary. I always say simplify first. So the simplest thing would be to say sex is biological and gender is cultural, right? Mm -hmm. And the dictionary pretty much says that. That's kind Mm -hmm. of where the dictionary goes, that gender is the cultural expression of behavior, dress, or mindset. But here's the thing that folks listening might not know. I did not know it exactly in this way, that there are actually, you know, five fetal layers to a baby's sex. And of course, only one of which we see when we're sexing Mm -hmm. the baby at birth, and that's the newborn genitals. So we don't see those other four layers. I think this is, you know, to the point of the people that you quoted. We're not seeing chromosomes, gonads, fetal hormones, or internal reproductive structures, which may disagree with each other. Right. So really just based on that one layer that we see, we have a little idiom that we shout at birth, you know, it's a boy, it's a girl. Interestingly enough, we don't have the idiom, it's a male, it's a female. Right. You know, somebody right. might say that, you put it on the birth certificate, but the idiom is already inside gender. So we're using that gender word, boy or girl, for the newborn sex. Mm-hmm. As I like to say, you know, that means that culture in this form of a word, like that cone, mm-hmm. you know, with its massive connotations, is really already driving our view of a sex that we ourselves have simplified. So I think we have to right. look at and reckon with the way in which culture is driving the very idea of sex, the idea of biology. And I know that can sound, yeah, a little too postmodern to some people's tastes. But if we remember what that means is it doesn't mean we are not looking at the body, but it means that that bodily configuration may not be determinative in the simple ways that we have imagined with these only two categories, man and woman, though that, again, is discounting the racialization in our country that proceeds to this day, that when we talk about voting, right, we talk about how did black men vote versus Latinas versus white women versus. So when it comes to voting, it seems like we totally recognize that in many respects, we don't have two sexes. We have six, we have 10, we have 12. Um, and I can come back to that point. But that's the way that I would think about it. First, simplify and then go to the complication. And then the complication, I think, tells us that sex and gender are getting confused with each other because they're actually so interwoven with each other right from the get-go. Right. Wow, that's great. Uh, A good way to view this, maybe, uh, at least for our discussion, would be through sport, a discussion uh, of sport, Mm -hmm. because um, we see this 
this gender essentialism notion is extremely strong in sport. I think uh, sport remains one of the most important institutions for reproducing that sex Mm -hmm. gender binary. So a quick quick example, a close friend of mine, uh, he's in more of a biological field. His son is a great surfer and we were talking about surfing and I had read a New York times interview recently, a New York times story recently about uh, women surfing and surfing pipeline in Hawaii for Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. first time. And it's a big deal. And of course, they were never allowed to surf there before. But um, so I sent it to him and asked him what he thought. If because I'm thinking about it, like, all right, this is not weightlifting or anything. Like, this is just surfing. Like, certainly mm-hmm. there shouldn't be mm-hmm. these these differences and why we're not having men mm-hmm. and women in the same competitions. But he he said no. You know, he said their men have more power. Um, they can get higher air, uh, on their, you know, their maneuvers. Um, women are just, he, he's not saying this should be true. He, he was, he's op- he mm-hmm. hopes, hopes for more equality, but he keeps defaulting to this real strict kind of biological notion that the, you know, the ceiling is higher in terms of strength and power for men and for women. And so I tend to view that, uh, I kind of go with it, it, the two different ways I've bounced back and forth. Um, one would be, um, I call it the the Nadia approach, like um, Sports Illustrated did the top 100 athletes of all time. And, and it was mm-hmm. Michael, Michael Jordan, I think, was mm-hmm. number one. But men have always defined what sports were. Uh, so if we defined athletic, the physical activity of athletic as grace, balance, dexterity, mm-hmm. flexibility, maybe a Nadia mm-hmm. Comaneci would be the best athlete of all time. But yes. we, we don't, you know, so the, yes. of course, along those definitions, women are not going to be as good against against yeah. those definitions is what I'm yes. certainly not. Yes. Yes. The, the other side I call the Sean approach. So when I, I spoke to a professor uh, named Travers, who is at Simon Fraser University, and um, they do research on trans kids but also in sports and 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 is a big a big wig in this field in in sociology and travers tells a story of a young girl named sean who was maybe five very very active and athletic so her parents put her in gymnastics and the first day there's five or six kids couple boys couple girls and the teacher wants to see how many if they can do a pull-up and no one can do a pull-up because they're tiny right Uh, but she does like five and so (laughs) she's excited because she wants to do the rings and then she finds out of course we don't let girls do the rings in gymnastics Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. travis says you know if she could do the rings then when they're 15 Maybe she's as good at the rings as any of the boys, but she's not allowed to. And so we see a 16-year-old boy doing the rings and we see a 16-year-old girl. And you're like, well, of course, it's got to be genetic, biological differences. Look at them and look at her. Mm -hmm. But if she had had that opportunity all along the way, perhaps, you know. So Mm -hmm. I don't really know. I'm always kind of trying to figure out, do we change sport to allow women to become equals to men, as my friend was kind of uh, encouraging? Or do we have to throw it all out because it's based on... A kind of a false notion. It's not taking into account the other four layers that you just mentioned before. Well, look at it this way. So um, one thing that I would say that that may be important in this conversation is that, um, you know, in, in the middle, right, uh, there are many more women that are better than many more men. Sure. So, so right there, right, um, in terms of downhill skiing, I think I could beat many men many male colleagues, right? So, right. So, so there's that. So in other words, this is not totalizing where men are better than women. Some men are better than some women. Mm -hmm. And then to your point at very elite ends of sports that were devised for bodies that we consider to be men, no surprise that men are better Mm -hmm. at those sports. If we create different games, which we are doing, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, we may find that those types of differences that come again back to like what body you have, you know, if you're a short man, you're not going to be as good at some sports as tall men, right? I mean, that's just going to happen. Or if you're a man of a certain weight, you're not going to be able to run as fast as a man at another weight. Mm -hmm. So, So these are the types of things that we're never quite attending to in the conversation because we've already created a kind of totalizing discourse on it, you know, men versus women, as opposed to looking at an entire spectrum of human bodies and what they can do and how we might want to organize, you know, competitive sports and non-competitive endeavors, right, to sort of allow for the play of different bodily configurations. So I think that's going to happen. Now, to your point, if we took the thing we call dance, it's interesting that we created a separate word and category 
for this thing called dance, even where you have competitions, right, in that mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. But if we bring dance inside sports, already now we're doing something very different in terms of how we might think of sport as well. So part of this is the type of grouping that we've done and then the sort of binarizing of our development of games for certain bodies that we're going to participate in them. Mm-hmm. So I do think we will see new sports developed. I think one way to go would be, say, even with NFL football, any body can potentially participate there, right? Mm-hmm. We are seeing people considered women who are kickers on football sure, teams. Sure, so sure. that's that's possible. Mm-hmm. If football itself changes, which, oh, by the way, it may very well have to. I say yep. that tenderly as a football fan. Mm-hmm. You know, if it were to become flag football, If it were to become football in a different configuration, that may allow, again, for different types of bodies, an entire spectrum of bodies to be able to participate. Mm -hmm. So I think when we're having this conversation, we have to remember that when we're talking about the most competitive professional sports, we're talking about one very small segment, you know, of the human spectrum, again, for whom those sports were made. So I think we're going to begin to see differences in that respect. And let's not forget that tremendous overlapping zone in the center where you're going to have, again, many so-called women better than many so-called men and then trans folks and non-binary folks and so forth, you know, in the mix. It's not to say that it isn't a perplex right now for what one does, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Again, I'm I'm somebody who's all for inclusion, so I desperately hope that sports will develop and go in that inclusive direction. But I'm not saying that we haven't been handed a major problem in our world by the sort of history of the way sport has developed. Um, And I, again, say that as a sports fan because I watch sports across the spectrum. So it's not... um, Mm-hmm. It's, it's not an easy thing to to figure out. But I think as more and more people start identifying as they already have as trans and non-binary and genderqueer and, you know, right there, we're going to have to be rethinking things in so many different ways. Yeah. And I, I would hope we would take that as a challenge that's exciting to yeah. embrace as that's, opposed to one that is just so full right. of fear and conflict. But yeah, it's, it's be full of fear and conflict right now. For yeah. sure. For many people, many, yes. many people in power, at least. But yes. Um, One other thing I'll say about that, JR, yeah, too, yeah. is because I was a kid who, you know, hard to say, but retrospectively, if there had been a word trans, if I had been able to be a boy and present as a boy, oh, my goodness, I would have done that because I felt I was a boy and I could not understand why nobody else in the world could see that. Mm-hmm, I yeah. played with all the boys in the neighborhood. I played football, basketball, every competitive thing you could play was as competitive as the boys. And then, of course, couldn't play Little League Baseball. I would have to go and sit and watch those games. Right. And some of the boys in the neighborhood didn't really want to be there. And they were <laughs> right. not they didn't want to be there either. <laughs> and I knew I could get up there and hit that, you know, right, right. off that right. ball if they just gave me a chance. <laughs> right right yeah so yes yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so I, I think these are the things that are that are complicated and, and difficult to reckon with yeah we you know i was going to save that the trans um issue in sport for the lightning round but i think i'll bring it in here because i could use it as a segue to the next uh question i wanted to ask you kind of about goals going forward or mm-hmm. are you familiar with nancy hogshead mccarr no, former, I'm not. Former Olympic no. swimmer, and she's a um, uh, professor, a law professor, very mm-hmm. celebrated athlete, and she has an organization that's devoted towards equality for women in sports, mm. and um, considers herself a feminist in in these ways in her writings. But she's come out very strongly against trans women in yes. athletics and swimming. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The Leah Thomas case, the yes. woman at Penn, uh, right. sparked quite a bit of this, right? right. So. Um, how I have a hard time figuring out because I, I like you, I am for inclusion. And I, on one hand, I it's easy for me to say, you know, tough luck, guys, this this person is a woman. And I'm not, I'm not going to say she's not because of what, you know, the birth certificate says 50 years ago. If she wants to be on the women's team, she's on the women's team. Right. But then uh, it's harder when you take Nancy Hawkshead McCarr, uh, we've gone, had some conversations about this back and forth and it kind of disappoints mm-hmm. me because I really have a lot of respect for, it. but on this particular mm-hmm. issue, I just mm-hmm. have a, I just can't go with that. So 
what you just said about the majority of everybody being kind of in the middle, I think is Mm -hmm. important here because Mm -hmm. um, the trans athletes or intersex athletes, Castor Semenya, these are point, you know, the 10th standard deviation from the norm, these people that are world world levels. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to make policy based on them, I don't think is wise. But uh, if you look at feminism going forward, um, how would you settle this issue to allow for inclusion uh, for trans athletes? Well, I think, you know, the the likelihood that I as an individual (laughs) can come up with something that settles this massively complicated issue. You can do it. I got confidence in you. Not so likely, not so likely. Uh, You know, one thing that I'll point out is obviously in terms of kids sports to wholesale exclude children seems to me absolutely ridiculous uh-huh, uh-huh. and really just mean. Again, having <laughs> been one of those kids, the only saving grace in my life was recess when I got to actually then, you know, and I had to play as a girl in a dress. So yeah. let's not forget that. I'm yeah, on yeah, the baseball yeah. field. I'm playing football. I'm playing dodgeball in a dress. Uh-huh. So I was the only boy, as I like to say, who had to be in a dress while doing <laughs> these sports, right? And still highly, highly competitive if you talk uh-huh. to my companions, you know, from that time. Right. So I, I think that the, there's a craziness going on in terms of that, you know, with children. Okay. Again, as you get into this sort of elite competitive sphere, that's more complicated. Sure. But again, think of all the bodies that we're excluding with competitive sports in terms of shorter people or heavier people or all these different types of things or their bones didn't grow in this way. So we've already made all these massive exclusions for, you know, trying to get the best and the most elite and having competitions that involve those people. Um, So there's already something kind of interesting going on in that particular way. Mm -hmm. So I think what's interesting is we sort of set the bar that if a trans person ever wins, then it's unfair because a trans they're a trans person. So we're just basically saying no trans person could ever win because if by definition a trans person did win in that particular sports, then that's completely and utterly unfair. Right. Default. Um, mm-hmm. So so there yeah. I think we have to look at that. And again, I know that that can be seen as, as simplistic, but I think these things, I think we really now need to lean on the people who are expert and subtle and deep dive. So somebody like Katrina Karkazis, mm-hmm. who's somebody Karkazis. that I learned a lot from. Yeah. I actually, before I started reading her stuff or really delving into uh, the question of hormones and her wonderful book uh, with Rebecca Jordan Young, yeah. mm-hmm. Testosterone and Unauthorized Biography. Biography. Yeah. I recommend to everybody yeah. listening, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I learned so much from that because this is not my specialty as an English professor. You know, this is not mm-hmm. what I do. But it turns out that the story of hormones is exceedingly complex. And Katrina's work really helps to show why the way that the Olympics has thought about this and doing chromosomal tests and, you know, hormones and so forth is utterly simplistic, doesn't work, is not getting, you know, to, to root issues, is not coming up with sensible ways to think about how we organize ourselves competitively. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I don't have a simple solution. I just think exclusion is not going to be the way going forward. I don't think that's going to take us where we need to go. Mm -hmm. And I think often when people sort of are arguing from those places, they've made a very passionate, you know, heartfelt decision about Mm -hmm. this, probably, you know, based on their own experiences being a competitive swimmer. But again, right there, I think we may find ways to organize ourselves. They may be organized by body weight. They may be more organized by height. You know, like you think Mm -hmm. of something like wrestling or, you know, boxing, which I don't know a ton about, Mm -hmm. but it's interesting how they have different categories already to Mm -hmm. sort of account for different bodies, different sizes. Mm -hmm. And so I think that might be some way forward, you know, in all of this. Uh, again, I think we're going to continue to have sport binarize and, you know, functioning the way yeah. that we do for, for quite a long while. Yes. So so that would be my hope is that some of the sports that we now see will be configured differently. Maybe, again, we'll have sort of bodily requirements. And then those are thrown open to anybody who can meet those requirements. Right. Mm-hmm. And that sport will probably continue to select for people at a very elite ends but it won't wholesale exclude other bodies, you know, that could be in the mix. Yeah, like an open category kind of.
what would a better world look like for you? What kind of is the 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 end of the rainbow look like in sexing the body and Fausto Sterling had this kind of it was basically like this utopia almost uh ultimately perhaps mm-hmm. concepts of masculinity and femininity might overlap so completely as to render the very notion of gender difference irrelevant is is that true is that what we should strive for and then the Kambahi River Collective quote that quote uh, if black women were free it would mean everyone mm-hmm. else would have to be free since mm-hmm. our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all systems of oppression what a great, mm-hmm. great quote is that mm-hmm. the goal and then finally mm-hmm. you say you wrote a better masculinity can't be had if it would fit definitions of the masculine. A better masculinity would seem like femininity, compassionate, emotionally flexible, expressive, where femininity would look like humanity, common decency, mm-hmm. and both would be words for the same thing. So what do you think? What What is the, the end product that you would like to see? Yeah. You know, end product, I can't say because I know I'm a creature of my time and I know whatever I think of now as being the cool new place we might get to mm-hmm. <laughs> may change even in 10 years. I might change my own mind. So, sure, sure. so I leave this very open and subject to change. However, what I would say I would like to see now is I think roughly where we're getting in some respects, which is to say, well, uh, we're not, we're not very far along this path. I do think that gender creative parenting is a wonderful thing to consider. And I realize how hard it is to do not to sex gender your child at birth because you're facing an entire system. You're trying to swim upstream, sure. you know, against an entire flow. So very difficult to do. And even if you do it, you don't sex gender your child at birth. That system is waiting for them downstream. Right, and right. you individually as a parent do not control the system. Right. So there's that. But I would love to see us not making that decision for children at birth, allowing children to come inside language, which is now changing, that kids might be able to decide that, oh, non-binary, that word fits me, or the word genderqueer, or maybe I like the word boy or the word girl, but to help children notice that maybe those are words that fit certain surface presentations, certain surface presentations, not all by a long shot but not to assume that those definitions are exclusive. So what you said for man, Fausto Sterling, absolutely. Yes. And I think in many ways we're already there. Cause when I ask people to say, when I say to people, do you think that men and women are biologically different? Absolutely. That, you know, a lot of people go to that. But sure. when I start to say, then tell me what a man or a woman is. If you think we should keep making boys and girls, then give me a definition of a man. Give me a definition of a woman. And people either can't do it in any way that holds water, including the dictionary, mm-hmm. you know, or they won't do it. And they're like, Oh, I don't know that I want to go there. Yeah. It's like, we are making these people from birth. Right. You know, <laughs> Surely there must be some investment that you have in something that you see, or are we just willing to say we are reducible to our genitals, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I hope mm-hmm. we would not be willing to say that right. we are reducible because that's as horrific as saying we are reducible to the color of our skin. True. Right. True. So, so I would hope for a world that's going to have, that's going to be language rich, okay. that's going to be category rich. I think we're already, you spoke about mm-hmm. Tinder. We're already developing all these different categories. Mm-hmm. Let many different classifications and taxonomies bloom because I think that will confuse the clarity of the system. Sure. And I'm all for confusing the clarity of the system because mm-hmm. the system isn't clear. Mm-hmm. You know, it is not coherent. It is deeply incoherent um, at its core. Mm-hmm. We haven't even talked about sexual orientation, but that's one of the most incoherent things of all, you know, which we yeah. could talk about. Sure. So sure. I guess to to kind of summarize what I would like to see is where we encounter each other as human surfaces just as I'm looking at you now, if somebody asked me to describe you, I could describe skin tone and facial hair and the length of your hair and the shirt you're wearing, you're wearing glasses and so on and so forth. For me to encounter you in that way, and when I pass you on the street, not to make, which my body does kind of automatically, imagine that you're a man or right now as I'm seeing you, I'm thinking you're a white man, but I don't know your history and I don't know your class background from looking at you. You've got bookshelves behind you. So mm-hmm. maybe you're on the street. Maybe you're not. I doubt you are. You know, <laughs> so what I'd like to do is to encounter you not knowing how you self-identify, not knowing what words you apply to yourself, but to enter into the mystery and the curiosity and the fun and the challenge 
of getting to know who JR is. Mm -hmm. The only thing I really know kind of at this moment is that you are a professor Mm -hmm. and you go by the the name JR. But there's so much more, right? Even with one's own partner, there'd be so much more to enter into not projecting a series of traits onto a surface that you see, Mm -hmm. or even a set of words that somebody uses for themselves. But to decide that there's a beauty and a glory in the human surface and all its diversity, and it's remarkable that we cannot see each other's thoughts. So I cannot know as I'm sitting here now what you're thinking in your head. And so much of gender and racialization and the way we're classed and cast and national Mm -hmm. origin is happening behind those Mm -hmm. eyeballs, Mm -hmm. which we can't see. I'd love to see a sever. This is a little too simple, but sever surface from depth. And to say, let me first encounter surface and all of its mystery, all of its allure. And then over time, listen and try to comprehend the words that come out of your body, which is the only way I can know anything about the thinking that you do. But even you don't know all that you think because the unconscious is a mighty thing. So that would be my hope for a world that... um, far more dramatically separates those two things, as clunky as those terms are. Mm -hmm. And again, it might look like I'm making a new opposition, but what I'm saying is surface is deep, and I cannot know how your surface has gotten into your head, never mind how my surface is getting into your head, and what what the play of these factors may be um, in this realm of the vast unseen. That's that's an amazing goal, and I imagine there would be a lot of um, at least surface opposition to that. So mm-hmm. the million dollar question is what are what are the steps? What are, if you had a, the magic bullet or it could pull the magic lever? What would do you think be like the most, I guess, significant step towards that that we could take as a society? Yeah, well, I, I want to go back to because you mentioned racialization. You gave the example that I give from my own book because my book is really. I would say as much about race as about gender. I I put the word genders, you know, on the hook as bait to get my reader in. And then to say to my reader, it's actually U.S. racial history that for me is the proof that we've never had two sexes in the history of this country. So to go to what you quoted from the Combahee River Collective, which is actually sort of where my book ends. I talk about it along the way, but then it's also Mm -hmm. the culmination uh, of my book. Um, Because here's what I want to say about that. (laughs) Nothing could be more profound than if we strive for the freedom of Black women, so many other things will come loose from its sort of fixed, congealed, gnarled, unequal, deeply troubling forms. Mm -hmm. And that does not mean that I want to undo the category of Black women, right? There's a, as as I'm saying about all these different terms one might embrace about oneself, Black, of course, very profound for, for many Black folks and being a Black woman. So I don't mean undoing it, but helping to undo all the presumptions, all the projections, all the inequalities, you know, piled on top of particular categories of human beings. So I think the Combahee River Collective made up largely of Black feminist lesbians, you know, who were also struggling in a world of capitalism uh, to free Black women from capitalist constraints and class constraints. I think uh, that remains a place to to see some possibility for freedom. And of course, I think, you know, Indigenous women as well being so much in the mix. I think that term BIPOC, you know, very Mm -hmm. profound in that way to remember that Indigenous histories are so inside Black histories and Black histories so inside Indigenous histories. So I think that could be a a great way to go. Mm -hmm. But I think it's the congealment around these terms, the congealment of meanings and connotations that have sort of hardened into a hard rock form that makes this thing only this thing, whether it's men or women or anything else, uh, is a problem that we need to put our minds to. And so that's that's where I would see ourselves going. But but if we try to take this on as like gender is something that sits aside from itself, right. there's no way we're getting there. 
because racialization is so profoundly in the mix. And I really do believe that our country is operated as having at least six sexes at the beginning and very quickly as other territories became important, you know, many Mm -hmm. more sexes in play. First of all, that will free us up from thinking that there have ever been opposite sexes. Okay. There never have been. Yeah. Can we follow up with that? The six sexes? Um, yeah. Is that related to the um, the Indian boarding schools quote you used? Yeah. It's really a way of saying that even if you go back, I always like to take, take people back to the 13 colonies so that people can see that really at the founding of our nation, right, we made legal and often biological, however bogus, uh, distinctions between at least six categories at that time. So we were already making distinctions between white men, white women, black men, black women, native men, native women. If you think about it, those were very legally distinct categories that again, Mm -hmm. suppositions that they were biologically distinct. Mm -hmm. So that's how far back it goes. But yeah, I like to give the example of the Indian boarding school, partly because, you know, the Indian boarding school is very much in the news, right, with the Catholic Church sure. uh, apologizing for the Indian boarding schools. And if people are watching Yellowstone in 1923, there's right. been a whole segment about that. Right. But just to remind folks of a phrase they've probably heard, a really odious, violent phrase that I think is very telling. And of course, this comes from 1879. The phrase is, kill the Indian, save the man. And that's what the Indian boarding schools were attempting to do. But if you look at that, right there is a confession that the native man is not a man, right? You have to kill the Indian to be able to save the man Mm -hmm. in there. Mm -hmm. And that means that the sexual futures of Indian men and women was there being killed in spirit and culture. Mm -hmm. And of course, what's so deeply troubling for me as an educator is that school was meant to do the killing uh, in terms of education. And yet I think the last thing to say about that is Mm -hmm. at the same time that these Indian boarding schools were killing the Indian to save the man, they were assuring that this assimilation into the white world could not take place, right? Mm -hmm. Skin color, of course, and graduation rates from the Indian boarding schools, which were pitiful because many kids ran away from the schools due to sexual violence and so forth. So uh, the United States has also been very profound in its ways of creating the lure of assimilation and the guarantee of failed assimilation at the same time. So I think, unfortunately, the Indian boarding schools and all their violence are an example of the way in which racialization has created different sexes, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I first read that uh, section of your book, the first thing that came to my mind was um, that Indian extermination period where you would be paid for killing an Indian, you know, mm-hmm. and you could just bring mm-hmm. in the scalp as proof, but you got mm-hmm. paid differently if you killed an adult male mm-hmm. or a child mm-hmm. or female mm-hmm. or something like that. So yes. a, a yes. really kind of grotesque and macabre way to, to yes. view it, but that that's another yes. example of yes. showing that they were different. Right. Um, how are you doing, Tom? Was a lightning round okay, or you got to go? Yes, oh, lightning round's great. Okay, yeah. lightning. Okay, lightning round. Um, you just talked about this a minute ago too. Different forms of differentiation: sex, race, disability. You bring up disability cited. What about obese? What about body image and people that don't fit into our kind of normalized structure of how someone sh- should look in terms of their size, uh, mm-hmm. relating to our definition of sex and gender. Yes, I think, you know, people may feel very differently gendered based on their body size, right? I think, you know, the category called woman, (laughs) you know, that we've been talking about, uh, you know, for a long time, I think many women, if they became of a certain size, a bigger size, felt like they were not really inside the category of woman. One thing I would point out is that the category of woman is actually a highly narrow category. If you think about it, there are many, you know, female assigned at birth people, with yeah. the bodies that we think of as ha- as being women who really aren't candidates to be women because they're not beautiful enough. They're not thin enough. They're not young enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, at what point do you literally grow out of the category of woman right. uh, is, is an interesting question, right? Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I would say body size, of course, another huge category Finally, and fortunately, mm-hmm. it's being recognized. Yeah. Um, Lizzo's work on that, right. uh, working on the big girls, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, okay. I think very important. Mm-hmm. You quote uh, someone saying Latinx is an opening and ethical position that engages with indigenous populations. Uh, what say you about that term? And you've also written something about the term cis. So if you'd like to talk yeah. about those together. Yes, 
I mean, personally, I like the term Latinx. I mean, uh, I'm a white person, so take that into account. I think what's interesting about the Latinx, and of course, now there's Latine, right? L-A-T-I-N-E, which is meant to be the sort of Spanish version of that, the Spanish-speaking version of that, so easier to pronounce. So some people prefer that. I guess why I do like Latinx is because the X there also stands for the way that indigenous populations had to sign away their property. So there's a kind of Malcolm X aspect to that that I think is quite profound, which, Mm -hmm. which allows that X to be both a kind of portal into something new and unknown the x we don't know what it stands for but also recognizing the highly disturbing history also of indigenous people in that world um, and what happened so portal and erasure is the way that i think of latinx but also thinking latin a also a wonderful new term maybe the one to move to and embrace okay and uh cisgender common term we hear that quite a bit too Yes, hard to be lightning on this, but here's what I'll say, is that I think the problem with the word cis is it imagines that your gender can match your sex. What I like about the word trans or trans asterisks, which is meant to be even a stretchier, you know, version of trans. So even with the word trans now, most people would say you don't have to have a biomedical intervention to consider yourself trans. So by that definition, I can say proudly, I am trans. I've had no biomedical intervention, but consider sure. myself trans and, and trans asterisks. That, that word is great because it means that you have crossed from this biological notion of sex. Um, the problem with cis is it imagines a matching that is not possible. I do not know the person that can get their gender every minute of the day, sure, 100% sure. to be right. matching their sex assigned at birth. I don't even know what that would mean. Mm-hmm. You know, and you would have to tell me whether you yeah. feel your gender at every moment of the day is matching. What does that even mean for you sure. to match your so-called sure. biological sex? So I think I get why we coined the term. I'm happy that the term was coined because not only trans people should have to say who they are. Sometimes it's a convenient shorthand, but I think this idea of gender as a set of normative ideals that anyone can live is bonkers and it cannot be done. So as long as we use cisgender denoting a kind of system, denoting a system of norms and presumed normalization, if we follow that up with can't be done, then cis is fine by me. Last thing I'll say is if you go knock on a door, mark cisgender or, you know, heteronormativity, nobody can answer because nobody lives there. So that might be the, the easiest way of saying it for the lightning round. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is, that is great. Yeah. Cause it changes all day when you're interacting with your boss versus your partner or this and that it's constantly, constantly yes. changing. It's great. Um, all right. Last one then. So the late communication scholar, George Gerbner, Uh, I love to ask this question. He once said, the telling of stories has always been the principal shaper of human behavior. Cave walls, the Bible, whatever. So as a professor of English and you tell a lot of stories, if that's true, what do your stories try to tell? Yeah, I I have a little shorthand that I sometimes say is as a sighted person, I must not trust my eyes. I must pull back into narrative. And so the whole project of encountering other human beings, which has made things a lot more exciting, even at the grocery store, a quick sort of, you know, connection that I have with another human being is to imagine, you know, what narrative lies there, what a what a gold mine of narrative sits behind those eyes of this, you know, human being that I'm encountering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think story always complicates it can't not. If I start telling my story as a kind of trans, non-binary, genderqueer person, it is not going to match a person sitting next to me who says they're transqueer, non-binary, sure. right? Yeah. Um, if, if a Black person starts telling their story, it's not going to match another Black person sitting next to them. So narrative, I think, will take us to these deeper, more complicated, endlessly alluring and exciting places that cannot be exhausted. That's the great thing about narrative. Yes, narrative can have an arc and a beautiful plot and a you know something that ties it up at the end. But as we know, then even with the movies that we see, then they create prequels and then they create postquels. Right, yeah, know, Yellowstone wanna, example. Yep. Yes, they want to keep that going yeah, because yeah. people want more story, and mm-hmm. story is endlessly generative in that way, which is what I love about story and love about being an English professor. Wow, fabulous. All right. Well, thank you very much. It was All great right, to JR. You. you too. Take care of yourself. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thanks to Catherine Bond Stockton for generously giving me some time to pick that big brain of hers. She was an absolute pleasure to talk to, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. I'll put some links to her info on the page when I post it, so go ahead and check out some of her work. Her writing's engaging and lively, not a particularly common occurrence in academia, so I encourage you to give it a go. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the interview, and I'll remind you once again that the purpose of this blog is to engage in public sociology, one of the purposes at least, which tries to bring academic discussions out to the streets. So please feel free to sign up for the blog and become a member, which simply entails creating a username and password. Then you can comment after each post. At the very least, please feel free to email me your comments, and I'll be sure to respond. Finally, the podcast includes We Fell in Love in October and Girls by The Girl in Red and Sound and Color by The Alabama Shakes is what's playing currently in the background. If you're feeling so inclined, you can push the yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, email me at jr at oursociallandscape.com. Thanks for listening.